0: You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started.
1: Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller, and I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I want to thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we'll be joined by Dr. Susan O'Brien, who's the Associate Director for Clinical Science at the Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, Medical Director of the Sue and Ralph Stern Center for Cancer clinical trials and research, and professor of medicine in the division of hematology and oncology, and the department of medicine at the University of California in Irvine, California. Susan, thanks for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be here.
1: So years ago, I remember you know meeting with patients, and maybe not even that many years ago, and uh, talking about CLL as a what I would describe as a disease of accumulation, cells that are living too long. But at the beginning, I, I wanted to get your perspective. What is CLL? How does it differ from small lymphocytic lymphoma, from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma?
2: That's an interesting point because that's a source of confusion among many patients. What I mean by that is if they have a lymph node biopsy leading to their diagnosis, the biopsy, of course, is read as small lymphocytic lymphoma because the pathologist is reading a lymph node. But if they have circulating lymphocyte count greater than 5,000, then we call it CLL. So to some extent, it's a continuum or a semantic issue that if it's only in the lymph nodes or if it's involved in the bone marrow, but not extensively, it's called small lymphocytic lymphoma. And the exact same cell, once it's in the circulation, changes the diagnosis to CLL. And so it it is important to realize that because it, often the patients come in very confused asking if they have lymphoma and leukemia. So... The treatment is exactly the same in the old days. Small lymphocytic lymphoma was treated more lumped with follicular lymphoma and considered an indolent lymphoma. And then it became clear that their response rates, particularly to rituximab, which was really something that stood out, that those patients did not have the same great response rate as patients with follicular lymphoma, possibly because they have much less CD20 on their surface, just like CLL cells. It's the same cell. So now. On almost any CLL trial, you will see the eligibility, rather than just being CLL, be S-L-L or CLL, because they're essentially the same disease, just a continuum.
1: You know, very broadly, in terms of the biology of CLL, is it a disease of, of proliferation, of accumulation? What, what is the major defect in CLL, as you would describe it, to uh, clinicians like myself or to patients?
2: It's interesting. It was generally thought for a long time that it's just very long-lived cells, and that's true, but it, there's also some interesting data that in subsets of patients, there are actually quite a bit of proliferation, but high turnover, so that the cells are, at any one time, there are a lot of cells, but it's not because they've been there for months and months. So it's variable from patient to patient, but I think from a practical point of view, we think of it as the cells are just sitting around there and lasting a very long time, and in most cases, particularly if the patients have very indolent disease, that certainly appears to be true.
1: 30 years ago, we were treating patients with basic chlorambucil and prednisone to control the disease, and so much has changed. And I wanted to get, again, your view of what have been, you know, in your career, the, the major milestones in understanding CLL and in treating it.
2: Well, you're absolutely right. We used to use chlorambucil or cyclophosphamide, very sort of weak alkylating agents. Then the development continuum was more effective chemotherapies, so fludarabine and then bendamustine, both of which are more efficacious than chlorambicil, but also more myelosuppressive. And then chemoimmunotherapy. So, although I mentioned that rituximab as a single agent produces a relatively low response rate in CLL, SLL, in marked contrast to follicular lymphoma what was i would say almost revolutionary was that it was clearly synergistic with chemo and so we moved from really just chemo alone to chemo immunotherapy so rather than bendamustine we had br or rather than fludarabine we had fcr fludarabine cyclophosphamide rituximab probably the biggest change has been now small molecules and certainly the first one and still one of the most dramatic is ibrutinib and when i say dramatic I mean that ibrutinib, which, of course, is a BTK inhibitor, which is a kinase that's constitutively expressed in CLL cells, as well as other lymphoid malignancies, when I say it was sort of a game changer, that's because in the original trials of ibrutinib, the patients were very refractory, as you generally see in a phase one trial where patients are going on a new drug, maybe a first-in-man trial trial where you hope that the drug is going to be efficacious and you have good preclinical data to suggest that, but, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? That's why we mm-hmm. do clinical trials. So those patients tend to be highly refractory. And the phase two, phase one, two data, actually the seven-year update was just at ASH. So that's the longest update, that, the longest follow-up, I should say, we have with ibrutinib. And the median PFS in that population that had a median number of prior regimens of four was over four years. So this was just mind boggling. In that patient population, you're right. We would have expected, if we could get six months out of anything we had available, then it would have been great.
1: Just out of interest, I mean, you may have had some of the patients on the on that first trial. How many years out are some of your patients?
2: Oh, some of my patients are eight, nine, 10 years out. And they do tend to be the somewhat less heavily pretreated ones. But even the very refractory patients, the fact that they could get remissions going for years was, was really uh, amazing. And then, of course, we had idelalisib, the PI3K delta inhibitor. Then we had Venetoclax, the BCL2 inhibitor. We have some new PI3K inhibitors. Duvelisib was just approved for the treatment of CLL. We have a more potent anti-CD20 antibody, obinutuzumab. So the explosion in treatment options for the treatment of CLL just in the past five years is sort of mind-boggling.
1: So, Actually, I read one of your articles, I read several of them, but one of them that I really, I like the title, it's uh, Approaches to Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Therapy in the Error of New Agents, the Conundrum of Many Options. So let me get your perspective on that. Is it many options or does it sometimes feel like too many options?
2: Well, I think that there's no such thing as too many options. I know,
1: I agree, I agree.
2: But I think it can be rather head-spinning in terms of which drug do I use first? Is there a preferred sequence to these drugs? Is there any role for chemo chemoimmunotherapy at all anymore? There were just two presentations, that, major presentations at ASH. One has been published in the New England Journal. One is not quite published yet. One trial compared BR to ibrutinib and the other compared FCR because up until then, the trial that we had that led to ibrutinib receiving an FDA frontline label was a randomized trial versus chlorambucil, which is reasonable in a frail elderly population where you might give them chlorambucil. But in older, very fit patients or younger fit patients, nobody's going to use chlorambucil. They're going to use a more effective regimen like BR or FCR. So those were two very important trials, both showing that ibrutinib produced longer progression-free survival Than either regimen. But one of the important things that where we, aspects where we think chemo still may be important, although it's becoming more questionable, is that there are a subset of patients with CLL who can tolerate FCR. So the first caveat is they have to be relatively young and fit because of the myelosuppression one sees with that regimen, who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene. And and that's usually a minority of the patients in clinical trials partly because those patients have a much longer time to needing treatment. They have more indolent disease. Well, there's now three publications that suggest that there's a plateau, long-term plateau on the progression-free survival curve with FCR. If you look at the MD Anderson data, which was one of those three publications, and I'll focus on that because that that one had the longest follow-up, that plateau is about 60% at 10 to 16 years so I think there's a thought that there might actually be a cure fraction in there. But again, that's a relatively small subset of your total population if you think that the median age at diagnosis now is about 71. So right off the bat, most patients over the median are patients we wouldn't consider giving FCR2 irrespective of their mutation status because of the toxicity, namely the myelosuppression and associated infections.
1: So along those lines, when you see a new patient... It's actually a two-part question, and one part of it is what today would be considered the optimal workup, both clinical and laboratory-wise. And then I would love to get your perspective on how do you make those decisions about whether to treat and what to treat with.
2: Right. So the workup. So CLL is a kind of an unusual leukemia in the sense that nowadays we do not need a bone marrow to do the workup, and that's partly because all the cells are in the circulation, and you can send the testing that you need on the peripheral blood. I won't say there's never an indication for bone marrow. For example, let's say a patient develops anemia. Sometimes you do need a marrow to sort out what the basis for that anemia might be. But at the time of presentation, typical presentation, in fact, in my experience, the majority are asymptomatic patients who get diagnosed when they go in for a routine physical and they're found to have lymphocytosis or some minimal adenopathy on exam. You can Send anything you need on the peripheral blood. Again, that's why we don't need the marrow. And I would say it's a little bit controversial as to whether you need anything other than the flow cytometry, which confirms the diagnosis. And it does that by virtue of the fact that the CLL cells have a very specific phenotype, namely that they phenotype as B cells, but they're also CD5 positive. So usually you can just get flow cytometry on the lymphocytes, and you pretty much have your diagnosis. Now, Do we need to get any further analysis, particularly in terms of prognostic factors, such as fish looking for chromosome abnormalities? I mentioned mutation status of the immunoglobulin gene. Do we need to get those at diagnosis? And that kind of leads into your second point about when to treat. So our standard approach, and this is true still, is watch and wait. And the reason that watch and wait, or some patients call it watch and worry, came about is that if you take all comers who present with CLL, about a third of them will never need treatment. They may have low-grade disease, early stage, indolent, and they may be older, particularly likely if they're older and they're going to you know, die of other things that we die of as we age, heart disease, stroke, other cancers, etc. cetera. So of course, the concept is first do no harm. So if a third of patients would never need treatment, you don't want to rush into treatment.
1: So, by the way, that population of patients where clinically you suspect this will be watch and wait, would you send off all those prognostic factors just in your practice?
2: Right. So, that's again somewhat controversial because if you're not going to treat them anyway, do you need them then? Well, would you have to repeat them later? Might be a relevant question. Yes and no. So, for example, mutation status. And I mentioned earlier that patients who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene, and it splits out about 50 50 of the population they tend to have much more indolent disease so it clearly gives you information about how the disease is likely to behave and it never changes so once you have mutation status you don't need to repeat the test but contrary to that fish does change so if i do a a fish analysis for cll or a a whole cytogenetic panel and i find no abnormalities and then i'm watching and waiting and the patient progresses enough to need treatment three years later, I have to repeat the fish. In fact, it's very important to do that because just like in any disease, there can be clonal evolution. And why it's particularly important is that in the subset of patients that have a 17P deletion, which you would pick up on the fish, and we also recommend doing a P53 mutation analysis because that has the same prognosis, those patients should not receive chemoimmunotherapy. Now, as we move more and more away from chemo, that might become less important. but now it's very important because if you're thinking of using chemo immunotherapy, that will change your plan very quickly. So one could argue, well, do you really need to get fish up front if you're going to if i'm going to have to repeat it three years later when they have disease progression, and the answer to that is well, it'll give you prognostic information because the patients who have these poor prognosis abnormalities are going to progress more quickly, but it's not going to change what you do because you're still not going to treat them. So it kind of depends on how much the patient is interested, I would say, in getting these prognostic factors. Sometimes you tell patients, well, you don't need any treatment right now and they're very happy and that's all they want to know. And then sometimes you have the patient population where they say, well, you know, I need more than that, doc. What What do you think is going to happen? Am I likely to need treatment in two years, five years? You know, how, how can we determine that? And then it's reasonable to get the prognostic factors at that time, because now you want to use it to advise the patient.
1: Given the complexity of the options available and the large amount of data that's coming in on each patient... I'd love to hear some scenarios about, again, what decisions you'd make. You know, with a certain type of patient, they would get abrutinib, and another type of patient might get chemotherapy. What, I'd love some examples of how you make those decisions.
2: So basically, in an older, less fit patient where I know that I'm mean, going to have trouble with chemotherapy, I'm going to go straight to ibrutinib. The one population where I still have a, a discussion with the patient is the population I alluded to before. The younger, fit population who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene. Now, in the randomized trial I mentioned that was presented at ASH, that was ibrutinib versus FCR, ibrutinib had a better progression-free survival. However, when you do a subset analysis and look only at the mutated IGHV patients, there's no difference so far. So why would I still maybe be interested in using FCR? Well, because of that plateau on the progression-free survival curve. Now, could ibrutinib produce such a plateau? That remains to be seen. It might be able to do that, but the follow-up, I mean, this data was just presented at ASH. So as you can imagine, the follow-up, I think the median was two years. We don't see that plateau on the progression-free survival curve, at least with FCR, Until you're out at about eight to 10 years. So, in other words, we'd need longer follow up on ibrutinib to know if we're going to see that same, what we hope is a cure fraction that we're seeing with FCR. So, that's why in that patient population, I still have a fairly long discussion about pros and cons of doing chemo, short term therapy, finished in six months, myelosuppressive. I do use growth factor when I give it routinely. And a very small percentage of patients, but not inconsequential, 1% to 2% develop late AML as a complication of chemotherapy. So versus ibrutinib, which is a great drug, is not producing CRs for the most part, very durable PRs, has to be given indefinitely, etc. cetera. So those are pretty complicated discussions. With everybody else, My go-to, and I'm not saying I don't discuss options with other patients, but where I much more clearly have an idea of where we should be going, is in all the other patients, except that subset that's mutated and and very fit and young. On all of those patients, my go-to right now is going to be ibrutinib. Now, it's very likely that sometime this year, venetoclax is going to get a frontline approval, and it would be in combination with obinutuzumab, the monoclonal antibody and we have not seen the data from that trial it's called the CLL14 trial but it's a randomized registration trial it's fully accrued and it has read out but it hasn't been presented at a meeting yet so I think that it's entirely possible they may have an approval later in the year and then things will get more complicated because right now the only small molecule that has a frontline approval from the FDA is ibrutinib. So it's kind of ibrutinib or chemoimmunotherapy.
1: You know, I wanted to ask you, because again, so much of the biology has been defined, or at least is being defined, I would love to, would love to get a better understanding, some of the chromosomal abnormalities, such as deletion 17P that you mentioned. What is the change within the, the chromosomes that, again, triggers this, the, the disease of CLL or is associated with it?
2: Well, I think you're right. It's more associated because, interestingly, the thing about chromosome abnormalities in CLL is they're almost never in 100% of the cells. Unlike, for example, let's take CML, where the patients all have the Philadelphia chromosome and it's in all the cells. So we don't actually know that any of these chromosome abnormalities are initiating events. They could just be um, clonal evolution. So, what makes the 17P so resistant or the P53 mutated is that the 17P deletion patients generally have a mutation on the other allele. So, they have no functioning P53, and that's why they, that they're that they pretty resistant to chemotherapy. Also, 17P deletions tend to be associated with a complex karyotype. So, remember, when you do a FISH panel, you typically are getting information on four chromosomes, which are frequently abnormal in CLL. But as I try and teach the fellows, you only get what you fish for. So what I mean by that is it only gives you the information on those four abnormalities, which do have prognostic value. But the only way you can know whether there are other chromosome abnormalities is to do standard cytogenetic analysis. And people kind of have gotten away from that in, in the days of fish because the fish was focusing in on the ones you knew were relevant. But now data has emerged that complex karyotype is a, is also associated with a much worse prognosis and probably related to genetic instability. But what is the actual driver in terms of the development of what causes people to get CLL? That is, for the most part, unknown. There is one association, which is Agent Orange. So in in men exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam, that is considered a disease that's linked, and that would be covered at the VA as a military-related ailment. But other than that, we don't know. It does appear to run in some families, so it appears to be, in some sense,s a genetic predisposition, but it's not like if if you know the father has it, the son has it, it can skip generations. It can be somebody's uncle or aunt has it. There is a the group at the NIH are doing a lot of research on familial CLL with the idea being, well, if you can find something there and there are genetic causes, they may also be sporadic and could they be contributing to CLL in the general population? But so far, it's been very difficult work and they, I would say there's no clear data on why it tends to run in families. And it's only a small percentage because when most patients ask me, yikes, do I have to worry about my children? And my answer is basically no, if you've got nobody else in your family with CLL. So I think that's still a big unknown.
1: i want to ask you about minimal residual disease, but truly as a way to segue to talking about is CLL a curable disease? And when you talk with patients now, if they ask or if you bring it up, how how do you address that issue of curability?
2: Again, I think we have indirect evidence for a cure with FCR and the mutated. And it's not just that they have these very long remissions. There's data in the publications, for example, the MD Anderson publication, that when those people are coming back to clinic and they generally come once a year, so this may be a, a patient in remission 15 years. They are doing MRD analysis on the peripheral blood. I mean, obviously nobody's bothering to do marrows in a patient that's been in remission for so many years, but they are sending MRD in the peripheral blood and these people are uniformly negative. So I think it's clear that the first step to a cure is MRD negativity, but it's not synonymous with cure. So what I mean by that is we can get patients MRD negative, both with FCR and now with some of the venetoclax data but some of them also relapse. It's no question that if you're MRD negative, you're going to have a more durable remission than if you're MRD positive, but it's not necessarily synonymous with cure. So I would say it's the first step to cure, but not everybody who's MRD negative is cured. And probably part of the reason for that is if you think about what does MRD negative mean, uh, and some people have now moved away from saying negative, but they like to call it unmeasurable. And the reason Mm -hmm. for that is, all it means is your, your assay, you're below the level at which your assay can detect disease. Does it really mean there is no disease? Not necessarily. Could mean there's very, very low level disease below the level of what the assay detects. So minimal residual disease is relative.
1: You know, v- vice versa, patients with a very low burden of disease, is there any immune regulation that sort of may keep that disease or immune surveillance that may keep the disease in check?
2: Ken, that's a very interesting question because that's thought to be the case in CML where many patients never become MRD negative on tyrosine kinase inhibitors, but they never seem to have the disease come back. And the thought there is it's partly being controlled by the immune system. I don't think right now we have any data yet to support that in CLL. So I think it's an unknown.
1: Yes. I wanted to talk about the very broad topic of quality of life. Uh, late and long-term effects in patients with CLL, uh, particularly on some of the newer agents, the the TKIs, because you've been seeing these patients for a long time. What are your comments on that? Have there been anything unique that you've seen that were new toxicities uh, and sort of unexpected ones?
2: So the the good news is that I mentioned the the longest follow-up for ibrutinib now is seven years. And basically, there's nothing that we're seeing suddenly late in the the course of the disease. The one Most of the side effects you see early, the side effects that you can continue to see late are hypertension. And so we do have to be vigilant about monitoring patients' blood pressures when they're on this drug. But it's not an unexpected toxicity because we see it early too. So the good news is there's been no late toxicities that we didn't see early on. However, that's the longest follow-up, seven years. And of course, with venetoclax, the follow-up is much shorter than that. So hopefully we won't see them, but I think the jury's a little bit out on that at this point because, you know, these drugs have come to market so quickly, which was great because they're very effective drugs, but all the follow-up that we have is, you know, limited to a few years
1: yeah yeah good good point. I wanted to ask you also what resources or supports do you recommend for patients with c l l who can they reach out to?
2: Well, I think the l l s is clearly at the top of the list. They are you know incredibly helpful for patients. I've sent a lot of patients their way. They can help in a number of ways, including helping patients find clinical trials, et cetera. There are some websites that are quite good that help the patients. Patient Power is one of them that, that's run by a, a person who actually has CLL and is a long-time patient, but also very savvy about new treatments and things and does interviews with physicians and posts them online and things like that. So so that's, that's really a nice one also. So I think that there are resources for people, and I think they can start with the LLS for sure.
1: That's great. Again, this is Dr. Ken Miller. This has been... A wonderful session talking about CLL. And I want to thank Dr. Susan O'Brien for being with us. Susan, thank you. It's been a pleasure. For additional information on chronic lymphocytic leukemia resources, be sure to check out the LLS webpage, www.lls.org slash leukemia. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, visit www.lls.org. Forward slash CE. And for any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800 955 4572. Information specialists provide personalized one on one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other resources. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archives section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org slash CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.